Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This week, as 2019 comes to a close, we'll wrap up a decade of Royals baseball. But first, we have a few Royals transactions to discuss, and joining me as usual to talk about them is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you uh, getting ready for the uh, 2020? Let's get. I, I, I'm already tired of the 2020. If you're on Twitter, I'm already tired of the 2020. They make it out of dashes and they put some text in the middle of it. it oh just, yeah, it, I don't understand that meme at all. I'm already done with it. I'm already past it. Is it 2020 so, or is it 2020? I think everyone's agreed it's 2020, right? Oh God, I didn't even, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's two zero two zero for sure. It's yeah. for sure 2020. Yes. Also ready to break in the new year here just to discuss the Royals with us is Matthew Lamar. Math, it, it's 2020, right? I I think so. I if you if you listen in the distance, I think I can hear a train. It's the Ryan Fitzpatrick magic train coming. So. <laughs> I, I don't know. Whatever year is, is good. I'm a, I'm on the Fitzpatrick train right now. Yeah, it's the only thing I can think about. The Dolphins QB that uh, helped the Chiefs out last weekend and, and it got them a number two seed by defeating the Patriots. There's a petition, I guess, that has over 10,000 signatures I saw that to get him to beat the, the drum at the Chiefs game uh, in the first playoff game, which would be, I think, pretty amazing if that ended up happening. So, yeah, thanks for the Fitz magic this year. In it. It seems like the Chiefs have a little bit of kind of that that Royals devil magic going for them this year. We'll see if that carries into the postseason. Well, as for Royals fans this year, they did receive a Christmas present last week when the team signed its first Major League free agent of the winter, inking third baseman Michael Franco to a one-year $2.95 million deal. The 27-year-old spent last year with the Phillies. He had 234 with a .297 on-base percentage and a .409 slugging percentage with 17 home runs in 123 games. Unfortunately, those numbers led to him being non-tendered this winter by the Phillies, so the Royals scooped him up. He has shown good pop in his career. Uh, he had 20 home runs in three consecutive seasons prior to this one, but uh, had fallen out of favor with the Phillies. So, Sean, what do you kind of make of this Franco deal? The Royals have him for, for club control uh, not only this upcoming year, but if they decide they want to tender him a contract in 2021, they can retain his rights then. Uh, what's what are, you, what are you kind of expecting out of him? Yeah, I mean... I have kind of low expectations. I I did uh, I will say that I liked him. I think I even traded for him in a shadow simulation in the off season simulation we did like three years ago. I mean I think it's been a while, and I, I did like him back then. But I don't know. He's just kind of proven to be not quite athletic, athletic enough or good enough to play third, and he's not really that great of a hitter. I comp I compared him to he who will not be named Chester Cuthbert. Um, kind of in that same skill set of a guy who was kind of who was good when he was young maybe had that one year but just kind of isn't good enough a defender to stick at third not enough not good enough hitter to play first um the money wasn't too bad i kind of would have expected um a little lesser deal because in comparison the guy that i really really would have liked would have been travis shaw um who got essentially the same i think he got a million more four, yeah, four um, million. and then there was a report i think from Jeffrey Flanagan that the Royals were it was down to him or Shaw yeah. and that Shaw just wasn't getting back to them or he wasn't accepting their offer and so they went with Franco yeah and I mean over a million so I mean that's that's the big consideration for me it's not necessarily maybe Franco by itself um you know I, I don't love the deal but by itself it's like okay whatever but it's kind of who they gave up to get him um I'm not optimistic I would would have loved Shaw but I'm not that optimistic about Franco personally well Shaw's also coming off a pretty terrible season as well uh yeah. what, what is it that you like about shaw over, over say franco 
Well, he's a better defender automatically. Plus, mm-hmm. he can also play up the middle. Um, he played some second. And then, um, I mean, he just had back-to-back three-and-a-half win seasons uh, before. You know, obviously, 2019 was not good. But 2018 and 2017 were, I think, 3.5 and 3.6 war seasons. Um, and he was a 119, or so WRC plus hitter. Um Obviously, he's a little older than Franco, um, but I don't know. I just like that rebound candidate. I, I like the idea if you're going to spend money kind of on a rebound candidate. Franco's best year was like, I think, 1.4 war or something like that. Um, his rookie season. His career, yeah, yeah. His career war was not was equal to Shaw's 2017 season, and then Shaw had a 2018 season that was worth just as much as well. So, um that's my big thing is like if you really wanted a bounce back candidate, I think Shaw works a lot better for the same price. Now, if Shaw wanted twenty million or something, okay, obviously that's a big difference. But for basically the exact same amount of money, I would have taken the guy who, even though he's older, actually put together back to back pretty pretty good years. Yeah, there's Shaw. There's there's kind of a decentish, cheap third base market out there of guys that were probably willing to sign one year, you know, two or three four million dollar deals. You had Shaw, you had Franco, Matt Duffy was out there who was non tendered. By the Rays, Jed Durko, who's kind of bounced around with the Dodgers and Cardinals. Uh, Matthew VR. was, yeah, it was, oh, was, was, was Michael Franco the, the, the best, I guess, option the Royals had? Yeah, I mean, the what's interesting is that the Royals last year had a third baseman for most of the year, which was Hunter Dozier. Um, and the other players that they had, Chesler Cuthbert and Kelvin Gutierrez, are both younger than Franco. Um, so the fact that they picked Franco... Uh, specifically over the three other third basemen that you know played most of the year uh, last year uh, is really interesting to me. I think Franco's um, probably upside is uh, Wilson Betameet. If you if you any of you remember that this is way back in the day, 2010, 2011, um, the Royals picked up Wilson Betameet, um, and he was uh, I think about 30 ish, you know, late 20s. Um, and he was pretty good for them. Um, and then they flipped him for a couple of just sort of, you know, excuse me, lottery ticket prospects. So I think that's probably the most uh, upside that Franco has. Um, it is interesting, and I think it's pretty good that they got him um, and they still do have his rights for more than this uh, upcoming season. So if he's good, the Royals can keep him on the roster, and I think that's an upside that, you know, you don't necessarily get with a full free agent. Um, but I think really the thing about Franco is it says more about Hunter Dozier um, and how they want to handle Hunter Dozier, um, who was really, really bad. The numbers say he's a really, really bad third baseman. Um, and what that then means for, um, you, you know, Bubba Starling and Brett Phillips as well in the outfield. Because by um, signing Franco to be the third baseman, that shifts Dozier uh, per Flanagan again to right field. Um, and then Merrifield would play center field, which I think is probably a better fit for Merrifield um, with his arm. Um, and then left field, if Alex Gordon returns, you know, then you've got a full outfield of, of people who are at least 28 years old. Um, and in the case of Gordon and Merrifield are over 30. So I think it's just sort of, it says a lot of really interesting things and none of them are about Franco, if that makes any sense. You know, it, uh, it says what the Royals think of Dozier at at third base that they went out and got a second, you know, a different guy to pay uh, to play the position. Um, I think it maybe if you want to really read the tea leaves uh, says what they think about uh, Phillips and Starling and Gordon's chances of coming back too. because if Gordon's not going to come back, then you can run uh, Merrifield and, you know, left field and then uh, Brett Phillips and Bubba Starling in center. So, it's it's really interesting. The deal I think says a lot about everybody not involved. Other, uh, it, it says a lot about everybody, other than Michael Franco. And one name you didn't mention really, t- you touched upon a little bit was uh, Kelvin Gutierrez, who I kind of thought maybe had a future mm-hmm. at third base because we and we've heard a lot about his defense in the minors. Didn't look so great when he came up and limited uh, in, in a few games in Kansas City. Of course, he's pretty young, uh, but. He also had an injury at the end of this year, and there was some talk that um, you know, because of that injury, they felt like they had to get someone a little more secure at that position. But you know, one way they could have gone is to say, okay, it's Hunter Dozier's to start the year, and maybe Gutierrez takes over at some point, and we move Dozier to right field. Now, maybe they didn't want to move a guy in the middle of the season. But, Sean, 
you know, what does this say for Kelvin Gutierrez? I mean, there's a piece by R.J. Anderson at CBS Sports that suggested Gutierrez could be a trade asset. I don't know about that. I don't know how valuable he is on the market, but um, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like he has uh, maybe a future with the Royals like maybe we thought a, a couple weeks ago, does it? No, and I mean, I think didn't he? He came off the injured list in like mid-September. No, he was out uh, for the year. I think he broke his. Oh, his toe. Yeah, 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 yeah his yeah. toe. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Okay, I was thinking. I know that there's still an injury. I was trying to remember. He's got over his injury, then got put back on because he's in, currently injured. Um, so that's what I was trying to figure out. Is so yeah. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do with him. I mean, he was never. I know that he was traded, uh, um, and so obviously he was someone they liked when they acquired him. But I, I don't know. I don't know if he ever really was more than just kind of a guy they liked. Um, because gosh, was he in the Kelvin Herrera trade, right? Yes, yes. Okay. From Washington. Uh, yep. And so, I mean, like, you know, I know we were all kind of uh, weren't too in love with that trade necessarily. So I don't think there was very high expectations to begin with. Of course, he came up, didn't hit very well. Um, he, he defended okay. But I, I don't know. I don't think that he was really ever in the long-term plans. And, I mean, if they trade him, great. I don't know what his value is. I, I can't imagine it's anything more than just a swap for, like, a low-A random prospect. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems pretty clear that – I don't know if they're necessarily going to move on from him, um, but now he's you know obviously going to be behind Franco and Dozier and um, whoever else might be able to play you know Merrifield even per, per chance um, at third base in some capacity. So uh, yeah, I mean we'll see how he comes back from injury whenever that may be, but you, you've got to imagine he's going to go right back to Triple A um, rather than uh, you know find a spot in the again uh, immediately. You know, what's kind of interesting, too, and Matthew was talking about how the, the lineup might lay out now, and, and if you look at like kind of the projected lineup, it's, it's not a young team, really. I mean, it's it, they've got two guys in their, at age 24 and Lopez and Monsi up the middle. Everyone else is 25 or older. If Alex Gordon comes back and he's the starting left fielder, you've got two 30-plus uh, outfielders in him and, and Gordon and Merrifield, and then you've got Hunter Dozier's 28. I mean, pretty most of the lineup is, is going to be 27, 28, 29, 30 years old. Uh, I don't know, Matthew. Is that is that is that where you want to be for a rebuild, or is it more like, hey, we have the bats now, and the pitchers are going to be the the young, you know, upside guys. You know, I think I'd be more worried about it if um, the it wasn't the strength of the team last year. So it's not like they're running out, you know guys who are not very good and that old, right? So Hunter Dozier was, you know, was a very good hitter um, who was dinged by, you know, his positional, um, for lack of a better word, suckitude at third base. And if he's he's a good outfielder, you know, he might be a four, that might have been a four or five win season, depending on how good he was. Um, You know, Merrifield's a very good player. Um, Gordon's probably at this point at least good for one, one more, one, one and a half. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's where their, their strength was last year. Um, but also I think at this stage in the rebuild, um, they're still sort of playing out the string a little bit and searching for the guys who are going to be their next Eric Hosmer, Lorenzo Cain, Salvador Perez. I mean, you, you hope Mondesi is like, uh, one of those guys, right? You hope Nicky, Nicky Lopez is one of those guys, but you know, I, I don't think that Merrifield is one of those guys. I don't think Gordon is. You know, Dozier might not be, depending on how long the rebuild takes. Um, so whether or not you're using these, you know, players who are in their late 20s, early 30s, or just trotting out random people like what Bubba Starling is effectively at this point in his career, or like Kelvin Gutierrez, who is, is just sort of, you know, one of those guys who's just younger, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's it's also not super ideal. I, I I guess I would be more worried about it if that was the approach that they were taking with the pitching staff. Excuse me, the pitching staff, um, which to their credit, they're sort of not. At the end of last year, they've been using a lot of younger players, um, and they haven't gotten up uh, and gotten a you know free agent pitcher in his in, in his thirties, um, which they have done in years past. They still might, you know, but... Well, they did get with Mike Montgomery last summer, and I do feel like he was kind yeah. of a stopgap. I guess the real test, you know, will be, is he, how how committed are they to starting him if, like, 
Jackson Coar and Brady Singer are knocking down the door. And I imagine at that point they'll say, okay, well, you do Montgomery's good. You know, he's versatile enough to go to the bullpen and, 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 and he can, you know, do well there. And they've talked about, you know, Jorge Lopez could fill either a starting or relief role. They've talked about moving Jacob Junis to a, a relief role as well. So it seems like they have some versatility there. And I imagine they'll be able to move some of those veteran guys into the pen if they have to be have to. So, yeah, I agree. At least they're not going out there and just kind of wasting money on like a, you know, a pitcher, a 30 year old pitcher just in a vain attempt to win games now. Uh, the Royals also did pick up at least one young player last week. Uh, they made an acquisition picking up Yankees pitcher Chance Adams for minor league inter- infielder Christian Perez. Adams is a 25-year-old right-hander who was once a top 100 prospect before the 2018 season, but he hasn't fared too well in the big leagues in, in some limited action. He has an 8.18 ERA in 33 innings in parts of the last two seasons. Uh, the Yankees had a bit of a 40-man roster crunch, so he became available once they officially put, put Garrett Cole on the roster. Sean, are we going to remember the name Chance Adams? Chase Adams, Chance Adams, come next summer, or um, is this a name? Is this was this a pretty good pickup by the Royals? Yeah, I hope we do. Um, I was a really big Adams fan a few years ago. I mean, I still am, but you know, he had um, he would always populate him and Abraham uh, Torre Almonte with the um, Astros. He and Chance Adams would both appear on kind of this minor league stat leaderboard thing that I kind of came up with and just kind of fooled around on my own um, because it just had ridiculous stats. Chance Adams, low A, basically low A to high A, to even a little bit of double A numbers are just outrageous. Um, it Part of him came as a reliever, but in high A, his second year in high A, well, his really first full year in high A, um, the Yankees moved him to the rotation and he just put up, I mean, just bonker numbers um, for a 21-year-old. Uh, and then... The next year came around and he was he was fine-ish in Double uh, A, um, but then kind of just you know it didn't it didn't hold up and that was kind of the big concern is that he was a reliever for a while because they were concerned about his stuff holding up, had some good momentum for a while but then kind of lost it and then you know we seen him make the Yankees you know pitch a couple innings uh, with thirty three career innings um, and hasn't been quite as good. I was kind of surprised the command has been kind of one of his big issues. I don't remember that being a big issue in the minors necessarily um of course that was in the low minors um but uh, he's a guy that i really like still and i love the opportunity uh put him in the bullpen see if you can kind of figure him back out and then transition him back to the rotation if you have to but i really like this one especially for the cost of christian perez who has been a lackluster hitter is putting it politely yeah as i say he's he was way off the radar as far as prospects i don't i honestly don't know anything other about him other than what I could look on, on baseball reference switch. So you know, he's a light hitting utility infielder who hadn't really hit much in the minor. So the Royals do pick up um, you know, kind of a nice little arm here, a guy that has some upside. It seems like Matthew, it seems like this is the kind of transaction they, they need to take advantage of as much as they can. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I think uh, that chance Adams is exactly the kind of player that you want to acquire, right? Somebody who had, you know, a prospect sheen, you know, that's relatively recent and somebody who's talented who just hasn't put it together. That's really the type of player that you want. And, oh, yeah, he's also under your team control for multiple years. That's that's really what they should be doing. Um, and that's kind of why I was, you know, somewhat surprised that Gutierrez wasn't, you know, their third base choice. I mean, obviously, he's not a, a top prospect in the past couple of years, but... Uh, you know, these 24, 25, 26-year-old guys who have, you know, not not gotten to the spot that they wanted to be and who are roster casualties based on 40-man roster shenanigans. Yeah, it's exactly the type of player that the Royals should be acquiring. And whether or not he's good or not, it, it doesn't really matter. It's it's You just got to roll the dice. Sometimes you're just going to get ones and twos. You're not going to hit, you know, sixes every time. Uh, also, I like him because uh, his first name will yield many, many puns. <laughs> I can't, I can't even fathom the amount of puns that will be written about him. I'm looking forward to it. We are a site that appreciates puns, and, and so I, yeah, I'm looking forward to all the all the headlines we uh, we get to toy around with this season. Let's he, see. Um, oh, go ahead. I do want to say that he also um, finished this year very, very small sample size, but he was. 
87th percentile in fastball spin rate, 94th percentile in curveball spin rate. So there's a lot of spin there. Um, and, you know, possibly uh, correlates positively to swinging strike rates and the like. So there's a lot to like about him, um, even if he's not a big high-velocity guy. Uh, yeah, good pickup. I think we all agree. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about this decade of Royals baseball. Well, the decade is over, and what a wild decade it was for Royals fans. In this decade, the Royals had just three winning seasons. They lost 90 games or more five times, and overall they had the sixth worst winning percentage in baseball. On the other hand, they won two pennants and the second championship in club history. They were one of just seven franchises to win a championship this decade, and you know who didn't win a championship this decade? The New York Yankees, so they've got that on them. So, I don't know, guys, when you look back on this decade of Royals baseball, would you say it was a successful one? I know there's a little bit of a mixed track record. I know Dayton Moore I gets picked apart both ways, and he's got his proponents and opponents. And uh, when, I guess when you look back on this decade, though, Matthew, what's going to be what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think that when you look at the past decade of, of baseball, of Royals baseball, it's it's hard to come away with anything and say that it's not a successful decade. I think when you look at Dayton Moore's overall tenure, uh, it, it becomes a little little fuzzier because his tenure started uh, halfway through 2006. His first full year was in 2007. Uh, and it took a really long time for the team to be good. And even now, the team's really bad and it's going to be bad for a long time. So looking at the sort of tenure of Dayton Moore, that's, you know, maybe not as successful. But just the, the period of time between 2010 and 2019, you just think of, all of the things that happened. I mean, the Royals won a World Series. The Royals won a championship. The Chiefs haven't won a championship since, like, I don't know, 1937 or, or whenever the fourth Super Bowl was. It's not yeah, that whatever. long ago. <laughs> but, you know, there are lots of teams that that don't ever get championships. The Cleveland Indians haven't won a championship since the 40s. The Washington Nationals just won their first championship uh, literally this year, the first franchise championship. And it's just, it, winning a championship is just a really big deal. And beyond that, just the the way that it sort of happened with the wildcard game in 2014, which was just a bonkers game. It's it's the best sporting event that I have ever or will ever be to, uh, been to. Um, yeah, grammar for that's a little weird. But uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a great game. And what I will remember most about the decade is just how excited the city was for the, for the Royals. People were getting into the Royals that had never really paid attention before. And it didn't feel like they were bandwagoners as much as just people who were really excited about something. And there was, I'm not sure if uh, I'll ever really get to that point again, in terms of, of civic pride and discourse is 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 during that time 2014 2015 even you know 2016 people were still into it and 2016 people were still celebrating the world series um i i I think that is one of the most special periods of time that i've i've experienced as as a sports fan is seeing the city just all decked out in royal blue and so excited for the team and i think not every city gets that either because they win so many championships and they don't care like the New England Patriots fans, or they don't win championships at all. And the Royals really had that sweet spot where it was just really, really rewarding for everyone who had paid attention to them for so long. Uh, and so I think it is a unequivoc- unequivocally uh, positive year uh, or decade as far as Royals fans. No, I think you nail it when you talk about uh, Dayton Moore's tenure kind of preceding the decade. And so by the time the decade rolls around, there's perhaps a little, I guess – anxiety or kind of uh, impatience with the fan base about the direction of the franchise. But starting about 2011 or 2012, it, you know, the team was still losing, but it did feel different. I mean, we felt excited about Eric Hosmer coming up. We got excited about Mike Moustakas coming up and Salvador Perez's exciting debut. And, you know, all these guys starting to come up and Will Myers was exciting to watch in the minors. And, and there was a different feeling about this franchise where I don't know if we knew we were contending, but we knew this team was going to be a lot more exciting than like the Scotty Pudsednik years or the 
Scott Ellerton years. You know, it, it felt like we were at least going to have some good young players to to watch. And like even 2013, which was not a playoff year, in which the team got into contention kind of late in the year, probably too late to to really make a, a run, but they were in the wild card race until the last week of the season. I mean that that at the time was the most exciting week of Royals baseball in what like 20 years. I mean. It it was it was nice to have that back, and then for that to just get exploded times a thousand over the next two years with you know a tremendously exciting run in 2014, and then winning it all in 2015. I think no matter what else happens in the decade, I mean those really two or three years were really special. And even you know like I said, the run up to that was kind of special in its own way. And even the aftermath, even though it was very disappointing, they didn't really contend the next two years. Uh, I think we still had a lot of special moments with some special players that I think that we're gonna have you know, statues or we're always, you know, we're going we're gonna to have uh, reunions every couple of years for these guys, uh, you know, but it was a special time that we're all going to remember. Like you said, there was an amazing amount of civic pride and just um, uh, a lot of uh, really, really a rejuvenation of this franchise and of this fan base that was really sorely needed. You know, on the other hand, you know, they didn't follow it up very well. I mean, there has been a lot of critical mistakes that were made that didn't follow up that success. So Sean, does that kind of lack of success following a kind of mini run there, I guess, diminish the decade in your eyes? You know, um, the, any, I think about this, this question, I wouldn't say a lot, but it comes up, you know, somewhat often about the kind of the down, then up, then kind of back down. Um, and I think about an article that Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs wrote, um, in 2015, Coming off, uh, basically, he asked the readers of Fangraphs to pick two two franchises: the 2011 to 2014 Detroit Tigers or the 2012 to 2015 Red Sox. Uh, the 2011 to 2014 Tigers never won the World Series. I don't know if they made the World Series. I think they might have in yeah, that time span. Well, 2012, I think they did. Right? Was that the Cardinals? They lost to um, uh, the Giants, I think. Oh yeah, uh, and so, but they never won. But they were always good. I think they won their division every single one of those years. Um, or you could have the 2012 to 2015 Red Sox, which had a World Series title in there. But I think that wasn't that the year that they finished in last place or whatever. Yeah, um, I think they had a couple of 90 lost seasons sandwiched around that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The chicken and beer in the clubhouse yeah. kind of thing. Um, and so it, they asked readers to pick one of those two franchises. Continual success over four years, but never reaching kind of the peak or reach the peak, but have bad years in between, which is essentially what the Royals done. Um, and uh, 56% of readers took the Red Sox. 56% of readers took, really 57%, um, took the, give me the title, even if it comes with the bad years. Um, I don't, I agree with that, but I also think that there is a lot of value in consistently being good, just because to win a World Series, you have to make the playoffs, obviously. And I would rather give myself maybe four shots to make the playoffs than the volatility of, you know, being like, once every what once every other year effectively um so i still think i knowing the outcomes everybody would take the red Sox, but not knowing the outcome i think most people would you know think like oh i can make the playoffs for four years uh consecutively i think that's that's a great thing i think any team would take um when it comes to the royals kind of in the next transition with that uh obviously 2015 and 14 were the highs but there was a lot of kind of the ball being dropped. I know someone mentioned the other day that we're coming up on five years, essentially, uh, since the title was won. And is that rope getting a little shorter of, you know, how how many years does winning a World Series title buy you um, to just continually be, you know, 2016 and 2017 weren't quote-unquote bad, but 2018 and 2019 obviously were. So it's it's the issue is that it went sharply downwards as opposed to kind of that – 2012 2015 red sox you know high peaks and valleys um so you look back on this past decade you have the success but i do think they really dropped the ball on following up with that success because their window was open in 2016 and 2017 but then it shut almost immediately in 2018 um once everybody left so there's disappointment there and i do think we're coming up on that the final you know maybe final year or so where you you can no longer cling to the 2015 world series yeah, and I think that a lot of that's why they've talked more about doing things in a more sustainable manner so that they don't – because I don't think they want a situation where they just have to put all their chips in. I mean, let's face it, a lot of that was 
of, of putting their chips in and trying to make a big push in 2013 and 14 was, frankly, people were wanting to save their jobs. I mean, I think if Dayton Moore doesn't make the James Shields trade and the team kind of still flounders as a 500 team, he's probably not the GM right now. So, um, you know, that, that probably played a big factor in it. But I think now that he has more job security, I think they'd rather have the, the, the more sustainable approach where they are contending year in and year out. And maybe they're, you know, not pushing their chips in and making a big push for James Shields or signing big free agents, but they're kind of continually um, uh, putting out a, a solid contender out there, kind of like the Tampa Bay Rays or the Cleveland Indians or a couple other teams. And I wonder, you know, if, if you were to go back to the 2014-15 team, I wonder, is there a way, and this is probably a, a more of a discussion for a, another episode or, or an article, but is there a way you could have taken a more sustainable approach with that club? I mean, I think they had a lot of big salaries that would have made that very difficult. Um, but, you know, signing Ian Kennedy, you know, re-signing Alex Gordon, you know, if you take the Cleveland Indians approach, you don't sign Kennedy. You don't bring back Alex Gordon. You kind of cut your cut your ties with them and say, you know, nice career here, but we're not going to pay for your mid, you know, your mid thirties. Um, and we're going to go in a younger direction. And if you had done that and maybe add some different pieces, do they have a more sustainable future in 16, 17, 18, 19? Maybe they, you know, decide to keep another, a different player, Mike Moustakas, who's a younger player. And, you know, they could have had a much cheaper deal. Uh, maybe they build around him instead. So I don't know. There, there could be, a lot of different ways you can go with sustainability, and sometimes I think that's just a way to say, okay, we're just just a euphemism for being cheap. Uh, but you know, I think I think Royals fans would like to see, you know, going for like like you say, I think you'd you'd like to see a more sustainable approach where you're contending year in and year out because you don't know the outcome. I mean, flags flags do fly, fly forever, and I'll take the championship, but I don't think that's the approach you generally want to take. I think you would rather have an approach where you're you're kind of successful year in and year out, even if it's not. Uh, postseason success uh, so yeah we'll see how successful they are doing that going forward uh, you know we want to look back at the decade and look at some of the the top moments and, and worst moments but we thought that was kind of too easy I mean obviously the best moments can be winning the championships but I did want to ask you guys if maybe there was an underrated moment of the last decade maybe a a moment that gets kind of overlooked uh, for me I think I kind of referenced it earlier but the Justin Maxwell Grand Slam in 2013 off walking Soria just because at the time that was the most exciting moment of Royals baseball. Like I said, like in 10 years, at least if not longer than that. And it did give us a little bit of a taste of what it was like to be a regular baseball team that was, you know, on the outskirts of contention. And it just kind of felt nice after being in the wilderness for so long to, to finally kind of be a normal team that had its name in the wild card standings, even if it was at the bottom of the standings. And uh, I don't know, it was just kind of uh, at the time, it was a really big thrill. And, uh, you know, certainly we didn't know what was to come, but but uh, I think at least gave us a glimpse of what could be in the future. So I don't know, Matthew, do you have like a maybe an underrated moment? And it could be from the from the postseason runs. But, you know, I, you know, I think we just generally think of either the wild card game or the or game five when we won it all in New York. But uh, is there another moment that maybe stands out to you from the decade? Yeah, I think. So I, I agree that Justin Maxwell uh, Grand Slam was fantastic. I was I was there um, uh, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, um, and we had, we both really you know look back on that moment fondly. Um, it's something we'll remember for a while. Um, I think in terms of play, I mean the wild card game is is just like a moment in and of itself, filled with other smaller individual moments. Um, but if I'm allowed to sort of um, take a little bit liberty with your question, I think one of the biggest um, moments um, in the uh, you know last decade um, was a was a trade that happened that people sort of forget about now, but it happened in uh, July of 2017 when the Royals traded uh, Trevor Cahill, Brandon um, Trevor Cahill. They traded for Brandon Trevor Cahill. They traded. Yeah, there's six players in this. So they traded Matt Strom, Travis Wood, and uh, Esther Ruiz, who is a, a young infield prospect, for Trevor Cahill, Brandon Maurer, and Ryan Berkter. And so the idea at the time was they were trading to get a team that was doing pretty well, some some bullpen uh, and pitching help. Um, and so the idea was that they, they trade and that they get some pitching help 
and then we're able to close out the season um, and maybe get another uh, chance at a playoff run. Um, and w- it just turned out the worst possible. So Trevor Trevor Cahill was injured and awful. Brandon Maurer was awful for multiple years and then released. Brian Brichter was really bad. And on the other side, Matt Strom, he had an injury. He was pretty good. He's you know he's still you know a guy that the the Padres have. Um, Ruiz was just a, a prospect um, that had a couple of really good years um, until 2019. He slowed down a little bit in high A, but he's still just 20 years old. You'd love to have him in your system right now. Um, it just was a total train wreck. And if it had worked out, we might have been talking about a. Um, an additional playoff appearance in 2017 because the Royals were doing really well and they made the trade. And then that was really when the team started to fall apart. And obviously, you know, it's not because of the trade that the team fell apart, but I think that was a really big trade that could have worked out and propelled the Royals to another, um, you know, a third playoff appearance and it didn't. And it just really sort of was the turning point really between okay, we're, we're kind of contenders and we need to do a full rebuild. Yeah, and I think going back to the sustainability talk, you know, if the Royals were taking a more sustainable approach, they probably don't make that trade. I mean, they probably say Matt Strom needs to be part of our future. These, you know, Trevor Cahill is a kind of short-term guy, uh, so we're not going to make that trade. And they probably would have been better off for it, but, you know, ultimately at the time they felt like, you know, we're going to lose Eric Hosmer pretty soon. We're going to lose Renzo Kane. We're going to lose Mike Moustakas. we got to make a push while we can, and, and so you kind of understand that. And at the time, I, I like the trade. I think most people on our site like the trade as well. It, it just uh, backfired so, so, so badly. Uh, Sean, do you have a, maybe an underrated moment from this decade? Um, I've got a couple that kind of I was, I've just been thinking of. Um, Moustakas' home run. So these moments or whatever you want to call them, but I think Moustakas' home run chase um, was really thrilling. I, I, obviously, it's been since passed by Solaire, but his home run chase, I think, because it was a record, whatever it was, 30 years or whatever in the making, um, it, it was just huge. And so I think a lot of us kind of rallied around that. Um, Gordon breaking the single season MLB record. I don't know how to explain that. The single season record for home runs by by MLB that year, if that makes sense. Uh he had, I think it was in Toronto. He had the home run um, that broke the single season home run record uh, across baseball. Um, Kane's three home run game in New York. I really loved that game. Um, he just kept dinging them to right center field. Was great. Um, you guys remember Gerard Dyson's grand slam? How fun yes. that was! Yeah, that was oh, yeah. that was a great moment. Um, also, I had a Hospice home run off Greg Holland. Um, I think that's twenty eighteen. Uh, and then Duffy's 16 strikeout game versus the Rays. Yeah, right? I was going to um, talk about that one. That was that was a pretty electric night because he had a was a perfecto or no hitter at least going into the six or, or am I thinking about it? no yeah. that's the same game right sixth or seventh inning he yeah. had uh, he took a no hitter which yep. which yeah. uh, in the last 20 years man I can't really think of anyone uh, in a Royals uniform taking a no hitter into like the sixth or seventh inning it just and it, it's, they just haven't had any pitchers uh, that on you know that tuned in like that i think hold on there this is going to kill me to say hold on i think jeremy guthrie had that no hitter against the red the white Sox. yeah that's true i Uh, I don't know how far he got into that but yeah i do it was at least five five innings or so yeah he got to the of course and then jorge lopez uh (laughs) recently but but before that it seemed like that was the the first time in a while we'd had a, a flirt with a no hitter Yep, he got into the seventh, and then uh, Kinerka, of course, Paul Kinerka broke it up. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, Duffy's 16 strikeout game had 35 swinging strikes that game. Um, and then, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Ian Kennedy signing, uh, which is was such a kind of a killer overall. Obviously, he kind of bounced back a bit this year, but it was there was a lot of excitement, a lot of, okay, our window is going to be continued to be open. Um, finally, we've spent money, then... Did they sign Gordon the prior the prior year, right? No, it was the same, the same month. year they signed. It was, it was okay. The same month, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, I was thinking like you know they signed Gordon for whatever it was seventy million, and then they went ahead and signed Kennedy for seventy five. Yeah. Um, so that's spree. they went on a spending spree that year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
I for some reason I think those were back to back years, um, which is why I was thinking like there's no way they spent 140 million in offseason. But um, so I think that's a big one. I think everybody loved Alex Gordon signing, and I actually want to add that to one of my moments. Um, that was such a great kind of moment for the fans because everybody loved Alex Gordon. Obviously, it didn't turn out great, but I think all of us would have taken that signing at the time. Um, but yeah, I think the Kennedy one is going to be one that I don't know if it scares any the Royals going forward, but it's definitely one that there was a lot of hope. Well, you know, obviously I was not a fan of it, but there was a lot of hope that it was going to do good things, and it obviously ended up not being great. So, and the underrated part of that too is that they they forfeited a first round pick, yeah, to right. sign him. Which again, if you're taking a sustainable approach, you probably aren't willing to do uh, because that draft pick could have ended up being a pretty nice player. But um, but yeah, that, that that's another deal that didn't really work out. I, I'll mention one more underrated moment. That is the uh, the Johnny Cueto's first home start after we acquired him. Oh, yeah. uh, just what a just a cool moment because how many trade deadlines have we seen where the Royals, if they're mentioned at all, it's because another team is looking to acquire one of their better players, and that's just you know that wears on you as a fan after a while. Like okay, we're just kind of like the farm system for for the contenders, and to finally have a moment where okay, we're the team talking about picking off players on other teams, and not only we get Ben Zobris, but we got Johnny Cueto, one of the best pitchers in baseball at the time. Uh, that was awesome, and then not only that, but he goes out in his first start at Kauffman Stadium, backs it off, uh, backs it up with a really fantastic start. I can't remember all the specifics, but I want to say he threw like seven or eight shutout innings, maybe. Uh, went, or it was a complete. I think it was a complete, complete game. I yeah, think. Game, um, yeah. And I, I think we had a Royals review meetup at the time. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys were. I know. I remember Farmhand being there. I remember uh, Josh Ward being there. I'm not, I don't remember all the other uh, – who else all came out. But, uh, but yeah, it was just a really electric moment. Uh, standing ovation for fans, you know, like so many signs. And people had those Quato hats with the dreadlocks. And it was just a really cool mm-hmm. moment to uh, to see uh, the, the fan base energized for that. You, you know, and I know he had kind of an up and hill – up 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 and down um, – uh, tenure in the regular season with the Royals, uh, but he did have some real. I mean, his bright moments were were very bright for the team, and he and I don't know if they win a championship without him. So I, that was a really cool moment, kind of an underrated moment for the last decade. Uh, let's talk about the best trade of the decade. Certainly, you have a lot of candidates: Zach Greinke deal, is it James Shields deal, the Cueto deal. Um, is there one that maybe rises above the rest for you guys? Matthew, we'll start with you, I guess. Oh, it's got to be Zach Granke, right? That's one of the sort of rare times in the Moore tenure where they traded a guy who had a huge amount of value, and they got back basically two regulars for their entire uh, competitive run. That's you, you can't really beat that. And Lorenzo Cain was low-key one of the best Royals to ever play for his you know five-year uh, period where he was you know at the top of his game. Uh, his you know top three or four or five years matches up as well as, you know, the top six, seven, you know, position players who ever played for, for the Royals. So you got to go with this at Cranky trade. You agree with that, you agree with that Sean? Yeah, that's about right. I agree with that. I think um, obviously the other one in contention, like you mentioned, would be the Wade Davis, James Shield, Will, My- Will Myers, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think a lot of us okay maybe i'm wrong i'm putting myself in the bucket that maybe not everybody else is in but that is one that i think it was a lot more divisive obviously a lot of us were sad to see zach grinky go uh, but i think we all kind of knew it was time and it didn't come suddenly overnight i think it was like the the shields trade was at like nine o'clock or something at night just kind of out of nowhere um and so this one was kind of i think we all saw it and um they were you know kind of in a low enough spot that it made sense um, as opposed to trading their arguably the best prospect in baseball for a guy. They were doing it the opposite in a way. Um, so I think that's about right. I don't think I was looking through. I mean, some people might say the Jeremy Guthrie trade, um, depending on how you think he impacted uh, the playoff teams. Um, were they, were they, got, yeah. uh, they traded Jonathan Sanchez away for, for Jeremy Guthrie? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, See, the only quibble of that is that he was a free agent at the end of the year. So technically, he resigned. I mean, they, yeah. they could have anyone could have signed him at that point. And yeah. So he, I don't know. I don't know if I count that as part of a trade when he participated in the World Series later. But you know, yeah, that's just quibbling. I like the Nori Aoki trade a little bit. Um, you know, he's always going to be a fan favorite. Obviously, he wasn't great. He was good, but he wasn't. You know, but he was. 
the idea of Nori Aoki is better than the player Nori Aoki. Um, I <laughs> the, think the photos, and, the photos and yeah. gifts of Nori Aoki are the best yeah. part. And I love him. So I think that's a good one. Um, some people might say the um, Josh Willingham trade. How about that one? Because uh, he got that single in the wild card game. Uh, and all it cost them was Jason Adam, who they ended up bringing back anyways. So uh, that could be it. But yeah, I mean, I think you've got to go to Grinky trade. That just, that's, that's really got to be it. Um, I think. So I, I tallied up the Granky deal as far as war. And so Granky was good. He was, he was advertised with the Brewers and then they flipped him midway through the second year with him. And uh, they flipped him for Jean Segura, who ended up being a very, a pretty nice player that they end up trading him as well. Uh, so he, so Granky was a five win player. Uh, over the next year and a half with the Brewers and Angels. Uh, so the Royals gave that up, which is good value. Uh, but they ended up getting 55 wins above replacement from Oof. Lorenzo Cain, Alcides Escobar, uh, Jake Odorizzi, and Jeremy Jeffries. And I'm just counting their pre-free agent years. So, you know, had they kept Odorizzi through free agency and Jeremy Jeffries through, because those guys did bounce around a little bit. Um, but if they had kept all four of those players, they would have accumulated 55 wins above replacement, which... which to me, that's just amazing, uh, and you know, and to get two regular starting players, both of whom were all stars. Although you know, Eskies was a little kind of a dubious all star appearance, but two two you know quality players, uh, a quality reliever, and a quality starting pitching. Uh, that's just pretty a pretty amazing haul. Uh, and I know Grinky was a very valuable trade asset, but at the time, remember the deal was kind of panned. Uh, you know, not a lot of people. Uh, thought the Royals got fair value. They thought the the return was very underwhelming. There wasn't any, um, you know, top 20 prospects in baseball that they got. So, you know, that's a deal that really worked out uh, really well for them. As far as the James Shields trade, uh, you know, they I don't know if they win a World Series without or, or win a pennant without James Shields uh, in 2014. Um, you know, it's a deal that I was very much down on at the time uh, as opposed to the Granky. I like the Granky deal a lot, but I, I did not like the James Shields deal. Uh, but now in retrospect, it, it looks pretty good. I mean, they, they got James Shields was as advertised for the Royals. Wade Davis ended up being a sneaky good reliever, which, you know, you got a little bit of luck with that, but sometimes you need a little bit of luck. And frankly, Will Myers just turned out to be okay. I mean, he wasn't a superstar. He's defensively limited. Um, he's got some strikeout issues. Um, he's a nice player, but, but it certainly, uh, hasn't been, I don't think as advertised, for, for the Padres. So, um, you know, the Royals made out pretty well on that deal, I think. Um, and, and I guess sometimes you have to make, you have to be kind of lucky with your trade sometimes, uh, and have them work out. Uh, the Royals have certainly been unlucky at times. What's the worst trade of the last decade? I know we've mentioned the Trevor Cahill deal. That would certainly be in the running. I think the Jonathan Sanchez trade where we gave up, uh, uh, Melky Cabrera for Sanchez, uh, coming from the Giants, is there is there a trade, Matthew, that uh, makes you uh, kind of frown more than others? Yeah, I think it's the Cahill trade, but also because of just how, you know, for it everyone was. I'm just looking back at our um, your article, Reactions to the Trevor Cahill trade on rosereview.com that you posted on July 26, 2017, and... You know how how people are, right? It's it's hard to get people to agree, you know, with with stuff. Ninety seven percent of readers, almost sixteen hundred people, approved of the deal. Ninety seven percent, and it was just the maybe one of the worst trades that you could possibly, you know, think of as far as as far as results. I guess that you know. Matt Strom hasn't been awesome, and Ruiz did slow down this year, so it's not as bad as it could have been, but just from the Royals' return on it, which was worse than just simply doing nothing, and for how much everyone liked it, it just turned out really poorly, and that the surprise of it, I think, is is part of why it's the worst one. Yeah, I see like, even Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs seemed to like the deal pretty well, uh, thinking Trevor Cahill could really help out. Uh, Sean, what do you think? What was, what was the worst deal of the decade? Yeah, I I was not a fan of that one, but I really like Ruiz and Strom, of course. Um, and I just didn't think the Royals were good enough that it was going to make um, enough of a of an impact. Um, uh, gosh, I didn't really like these are such these are such small kind of nitpicky ones, but like I didn't like the Milky Cabrera trade that cost AJ um, uh, Puckett. And Andre Davis. I mean, not that AJ Puckett was that good, and I don't even know what he's doing with the White Sox. I don't even think he pitched this year for them. Um, but it was kind of like, 
is the same thing. The Royals weren't that particularly good. They just drafted Puckett not that long ago. Um, and, you know, Puckett Cabrera was kind of a – I wouldn't call him quite over the hill, but I don't think he was going to do much. So that's one I was like, okay, that's kind of a weird one. Um, I think the Kelvin Herrera one a lot of us might have been underwhelmed on. Uh, you know, maybe the issue was our expectations for Herrera, who was injured at the time uh, or coming off an injury or something at the time. Uh, but I think a lot of us like, well, we figured we'd get more for that. The Chris Getz trade brought so much pain to the Royals organization that that one has to be mentioned. Not that that was not that, that was before any... the decade, though. That was two thousand nine. Yeah, that was November of two thousand nine, though. It was going <laughs> into the two thousand ten season, so that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, so yeah, uh, so if we're, if we're gonna count that one, that's the one that I was like, oh man, eventually just caused so much pain. Um, maybe even the same for the Vin Bizarro trade, which gave us the Vin Bizarro game. So some of these just have these little tiny ripple effects, but um, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I think it was all just kind of minor ones, but really the big one, um, as we mentioned, was that Cahill trade. I think I think that was a tough one for a lot of us to to swallow, um, yeah. as it happened and as it turned out as well. Yeah, I think the Cahill deal has to be number one, and then number two probably is the Jonathan Sanchez Milky Cabrera deal, which actually is probably a worse trade, but had less impact since the Royals weren't good anyway underrated sneaky bad trade that was made at the very beginning of the decade david de hazes to the athletics for oh Justin yeah marks i guess the vin mazar that's the vin mazar trade you're talking about but remember that at one point the royals were asking for like jose iglesias and josh reddick from the red Sox, and you know that was in the middle of de hazes having like an all-star caliber season and yeah. then the royals don't pull the trigger on any kind of trade he injures his uh, wrist uh, going for a fly ball in late July, and so he's on the shelf, and so no one wants to trade for him, and so the Royals don't end up trading him. And instead, they tra- and well, I think they compounded that by trading him in the offseason when they had another year with him, and they could have hung on to him and seen you know seen if he could have you know re- revived his value a little bit the next season, but they didn't do that. Instead, they trade him for two pitchers who never really turned in anything, and and we only know them because Vin Mazar gave up a million runs in a game once. And so that was kind of a, an underrated bad deal. What about free agents? Uh, let's talk about first about the best free agent deal out there in the decade. Matthew, who's who's the best signing Dayton Moore has made this decade? Um, you know, that's a really great question. Um, I think was 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 Franco the first time? Was he was he a trade or was no, he, he a was, sign? Yeah, that was a signing. He signed for one year, two point five million dollars, and had a I think a four win season that first year, and then they I'm signed go- to an extension. Yeah, I, I I think that's oftentimes uh, more more does these things where he'll he'll sign someone, he'll get really good value at it, and he'll double down on it when you know the value is coming gone. Um, and Young, you know that instance. yeah, Jeff Francoeur, Chris Young, um, happened with uh, Bruce Chen um, as well. I think if I remember correctly, yeah. Jeremy um, Guthrie. Yeah, yeah, that that too. Uh, there was four players just right off the top of, my, of our heads, just like within a couple of years span. Uh, but yeah, that first Jeff Francoeur signing. It was really great. I mean, really, really great. Didn't pay very much and got great production. So that was a great signing. Yeah, and also that, that winter they signed Melky Cabrera to a one-year $1.25 million deal. And Cabrera to that point had been a disappointing uh, top 100 former top 100 prospect who had been a disappointment, kind of like we were talking with Chance Adams. You know, he'd been the guy that had the pedigree but hadn't put up the results. And when, sometimes when you take a chance on those guys, they end up, you know, meeting their talent. And Melky certainly did. He had a fantastic year that year. Unfortunately, they 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 made it worse. They they took away all that value by tr- making one of the worst trades of the last decade and sending him to the Giants for Jonathan Sanchez. But at, at the time, that was that was probably one of the better signings Dayton Moore has made this decade. What would you, uh, Sean? What's your top signing of the decade? Um, the gosh, I just was thinking of it. Um, the I like the Kendry Morales one. That was a good. That was obviously a good one. Um, right in the peak of the Orioles, you know. World Series runs, um, and you know was good, good rebound candidate there as well. That, that um, was coming, also signing. I think that was pretty panned at our site as well. Yeah, yeah, and he's coming off of. Um, he had just played for the Twins that year, right? That was the shortened season, but the year prior. I think. No, no, I think you're right. I think he that was the year he didn't sign until June. Yeah, and he signed to the Twins. Okay. Um, and so that was good. Um, the it's hard not to like the Mike Minor Mike Minor one, um, which was for basically what two seven and a half, seven point two five million. Um, that was a good one. Obviously, they didn't get enough out of him um, as far as in return. 
uh, they kind of wasted him a bit. But uh, Mike Miner one was good. Um, those are really the two. And I, I'm always going to add the Alex Gordon one in there. Obviously, like we said, it didn't live up to it, but I don't know. Uh, I think the day he signed that deal, none of us had any issue. And, you know, he could have done really nothing wrong in our minds. And even though he didn't hit as well or live up to his deal, um, it seemed like we were just paying back, paying him back for all the legacy that he provided over the years. A couple more that I'll add. Chris Young, uh, the, like you're saying, Matthew, the original contract, uh, they signed him for $675,000, and he was a pretty solid pitcher uh, and was huge in the postseason that year. So that was, a, you know, the original contract was a really good signing. Edison Volquez, two years, $20 million. Um, yeah. I think that was kind of a, a mixed result, mixed reviews at the time, but um, – because he had a little bit of rough patch with the Pirates before that. Um, but he ended up being a, a pretty solid signing. And again, a, a guy that was a huge contributor in the postseason. So those are a couple of nice, really nice signings. What about the worst signing of the decade? Uh, Sean, we'll start with you this time. Uh, uh, all the money they spent, who, who was, who was uh, the biggest waste? I'll, I'll just continue to – obviously, it's Ian Kennedy, but I'll, I'll move on past that. Um, gosh, I was just looking at one that I – well, okay. Travis Wood. Terror. Oh, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, two twelve million. Uh, oh, terrible. Uh, and what was weird about that is he, I thought they were going to make him a starting pitcher for that kind of money, and instead he, they were, he was just like a middle reliever, not even a situation yeah. left him, I think. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of money for a guy that was not doing a very important role, and then he was terrible at it. Yeah. Um, shoot. Omar Infante. I'm, I don't mean to steal them all, but Omar Infante – even and he even had, if I recall right, I think he had actually a goodish first year, right? Yeah, it was or okay. even a good first few months. Mm-hmm. Um, he was struck. Then, or I think he was struck early on yeah. in the face, right? And that really hit. impacted his. I don't know, maybe impacted the rest of his career, as far as we know. But he was never quite the same after that. Uh, the Alex, I don't know why people like the Alex Rio signing, even though it was one year, eleven million. He was so bad throughout the year. I, I don't know. Um, so that one. The Brandon Moss one was pretty bad too. Same well, year. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I could go on for a while on this one, but yeah, I mean those are those are the ones that stick out a lot. Then of course Chris Owings, even though it was only three million dollars, hands down the worst player the Royals have employed in the past ten years, I think. Yeah, there's an old adage that there's no such thing as a bad one year contract. And I think Alex Rios really defied that because pushed that boundary they paid yeah. 11 million dollars to get negative 1.1 wins above replacement he was a terrible defender uh you know he hit 255 with you know if you want to look at convention traditional stats 32 rbi in 105 games 640 ops those are pretty awful numbers for a right fielder he, he uh forgot to throw to the base in the, in the world series i don't that's the only thing i remember him yeah. doing in the world series uh, <laughs> so yeah that that was a pretty bad time but I, yeah i agree with you. omar infante was the worst I, and, and i know he had some he actually did have some good postseason moments but uh, he was just pretty pretty bad for the royals to cut bait with a year and a half left to go in a contract you have to be pretty bad and he was he was pretty lousy uh matthew what is there any other bad contracts you want to add on to that so uh, Jeff and Kerr, the second time. Mm-hmm. So in 2011, Fangraph says that he hit 15% above league average, 2.7 wins above replacement. Pretty good. Uh, for the other two years, and the Royals, um, I, I don't remember, did they trade him or, or cut him in 2013? I, I do not remember. But um, for the next two years, he was worth 2.2 wins under replacement. Were, if you if you will. Um, or negative 2.2 WAR, which is just like really impressive. He hit uh, was at 43 WRC plus in uh, in 2013, and that's that's real bad. And it didn't need to happen, but but it did. Yeah, yeah. There's there's been some some missteps in free agency, and I, I wonder if that's going to make it's going to inhibit them a little bit going forward, just because some of these contracts have just blown up in their face. Uh, but you know, we'll have to see. Do you guys remember? Do you guys remember Jeff Francis pitching for the Royals? I totally blanked that out, but he was two million dollars signing. I have but no he wasn't idea. That bad. I remember I him like challenge. Oh, did he lead the league? Lead the league in losses that year? I mean, he, and he was okay, but um, like they were just a, a terrible team at that time, and Man. they needed yeah. someone to start <laughs> the Jeff Francis years. All right, uh, let's wrap things up with uh, our Royals review review. Matthew, uh, did you want to give us? Well, I guess we can do like the best. 
thing we experienced this year in 2019 since it's the end of the year? What was the what was the best thing you enjoyed this year? Yeah, so I will say so the best video game that I played this year uh, was uh, the game Control uh, by Remedy uh, Entertainment. Um, Remedy's produced a lot of really good uh, video games. They're the producers of Max Payne, um, Alan Wake, um, which are both you know really well received. Uh, Quantum Break uh, was their last game, which was a little more mixed review. But Control is really, I think, you know, one of the better um, single player games that you can you can get today, um, and that's this year or in the past. Um, it's not a you know really long game you know if you do everything maybe 20 hours you know 20 to 30 just kind of like a standard you know first person um, or for um, one player uh, game um, but it's really really good it's got a great story it's got really fun combat uh, it's just sort of like the platonic ideal of a really fun single player experience um, and uh, for whatever reason you know because it's an original um, you know it's an original IP. Um, and it's not one of, you know, the games uh, that has been uh, created by a celebrity game director. Um, you know, it's it's sort of flown under the radar. And I think that's that's a little sad. Um, but it's it's really, really good. And if you've got an Xbox One, a PlayStation 4, or a Microsoft Windows PC personal computer, uh, you should pick it up. It's very good. I recommend it. There will be a couple of uh, downloadable contents as well. Um, and they've already released a sort of free addition to the game that um, sort of adds some stuff at the end. Um, so go play it if you're if you're a video game person. Go play it. What was the name so of it? Quantum. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What was the name of it again? Control. Control. Okay. So Quantum Break wasn't any good. I remember seeing that trailer years ago, thinking like, oh, that's pretty cool. You can move gravity and objects and control like the you know control stuff. But it wasn't any good. You're saying. It had mixed reviews. I really, really liked it. Um, okay. So I, I, th- I think it's good. It's certainly worth playing now because it's it's really cheap. Um, but I, I really liked it. It was just kind of divisive a little bit. Um, I, uh, but it was really good. Um, I like you know Remedies uh, as a as a game studio. I think they really do do a really good job of of creating worlds that are interesting, if nothing else. Um, and Quantum Break is kind of like Control, just without the. Um, the gameplay is really buttoned down as control. Um, they've, they've got some similarities. Um, Quantum Break's really good too. Um, so if, if you want to pick that up, that should be that should be pretty cheap. The interesting thing about Quantum Break is that it has um, like some like real live action TV show kind of stuff that's interspersed with the video game um, aspect of it, right? So you get to the end of the chapter or whatever, and you get to see a um, you know ten minute clip of basically TV show production with events that are uh, based on your decisions that you made in the video game, which is really cool. Um, and whether or not it works or not is really up to you. But I, it's, it's very interesting, if nothing else. Okay. Sean, what do you have for us this year? Um, I've got a couple things that I, I enjoyed in 2019. Um, the first one, I think the best movie 2019 is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. Um, I know that... It, it, universally, it's been loved by critics, but I know that kind of the Twitterverse or, you know, everybody who's not a professional film critic, and obviously I'm not one of those, but um, it's been a little more divisive, but I absolutely love that movie. I think it's maybe his best film. I enjoyed the heck out of it. It's probably not only the funniest movie I saw this year as far as for a 2019 movie, but um, best movie I saw this year. Um, I like The Watchmen turning into maybe the best TV show of 2019. I had really, really low expectations just because I didn't really – the movie was fine. I never read the the uh, graphic novels, but uh, I just had very low to zero expectations, and it blew me away. Um, we got season two of Succession this year, my favorite TV show uh, currently. Um, we got Chernobyl this year, which was just an incredible miniseries. I think maybe – not as good as Band of Brothers, maybe, but it's one of the best HBO miniseries that they put out. Um, we got maybe my favorite moment was the universal hate the final season of Game of Thrones got from everybody. <laughs> it's it, the the stab in the back that the fans gave to this whatever it was six seasons that everybody loved, and the seventh season got absolutely destroyed by everybody. Yeah, my hand is my, my hand is up in the air. I'm one. Yes, I'm one of those fans. 
That is one of my favorite moments of just the total heel turn that they did. And it was just uh, such a terrible season. Uh, so that, and then, um, come on. If you're going to talk sports, how could you not enjoy Lamar Jackson 2019? Such such a fun player. He was one of my favorite kind of athletes of the year. Um, him and Ryan Tannehill. So uh, big ups to the soon-to-be future MVP, uh, or the future MVP, Lamar Jackson. So just a few of my favorite things this year. Uh, I guess one is it, the uh, the Toronto Raptors. My a couple years ago, my son kind of got into basketball. He started playing basketball, so he wanted a an NBA team to cheer for. And we, of course, we don't have one in Kansas City. So just kind of randomly, he chose the Toronto. I don't know why he chose the Toronto Raptors, but he chose the Toronto Raptors. And they were a pretty middling team back then. And then like this year, they got really good, and they were kind of an underdog to win the championship. And they went up against the mighty Golden State Warriors, and they just out-hustled them and out-gritted them and, and grinded out a championship. And I let my son stay up for uh, most of the last game, and um, uh-huh. and uh, he got to see the – and he, you know, it's kind of funny to see his evolution as a sports fan to, to go from, like, not understanding things you know, a year ago, and now he's, like – Yelling at Serge Ibaka for shooting, uh, you know, too far away, and and yelling at you know uh, uh, Fred Van Vliet for not driving to the hole, and so he's turning to a sports fan. So that was kind of cool to see him kind of experience because he was a little too young when the Royals won a championship to really appreciate it. Um, he's gotten into the Chiefs, but of course they've been kind of you know they've had some postseason disappointments. So it was kind of nice to see him get that uh, as a sports fan at a young age. Uh, the other thing um, is uh, Conan uh, the podcast. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcast works at work. Uh, but I've been really into uh, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, uh, which I'm not really into comedian uh, podcasts, but um, I'm a huge Conan O'Brien fan. And they're they're funny. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're funny, but they're actually just really good interviews with really interesting people. It's it's him talking to an hour to someone that he's either friends with or really wants to be friends with that, that he knows. Uh, and it's, it's mostly people from comedy. I mean, Bill Hader, there's a great interview with him. Dana Carvey has a couple episodes that are just side-splittingly hilarious. Uh, but he's also got like people like Robert Caro, the, the biographer, uh, who wrote about Lyndon Johnson, who you wouldn't think that'd be a great interview, but that's actually one of the best ones because Caro is just really charming and talks about his process. And you can tell what a huge fan Conan is of Caro's. And so to kind of see a celebrity, talking to someone they really admire i think it's really kind of cool and to see, to see someone in that element and so it's a really good podcast i mean obviously you should listen to our podcast but if you're not going to listen to our podcast uh i would definitely say check out conan o'brien needs a friend it actually came out at the end of last year but um this year's year i really got into it and you can find most of the episodes from this year so definitely check that out so uh well thanks guys for a great 2019 uh, you know i'm sure we can find all your stuff going forward into 2020 and uh That'll do it for for us this week, this year, this decade. Thanks again to Sean and Matthew for being on the show. And thanks to all our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next time. Hey!